You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. In the name of Jesus, amen. As lightning flashes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In the kingdom of God, dear saints, it is the opposite in the kingdom of this world. The way a thunderstorm arrives now is first you see the lightning and then you hear the thunder. With the kingdom of God, it is the opposite. You first hear and then you see. We first hear that Jesus is dead and raised. We first hear the preaching that Jesus has overcome death and the grave, sin, death, and the devil for us. We first hear that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, that all the enemies are placed under His feet, that Jesus has won the victory. We hear it first, here, right here. And in our baptisms and at the altar, we hear the announcement of the coming of the kingdom, and then one day soon, we will see it. It will be revealed to our eyes. First the thunder, and then the lightning. And this matters. I want to explore in some ways why this matters, why the coming of Jesus matters, why there will be a last day soon when the trumpet will sound and Jesus will return and the dead will be raised. Why believing this, in fact, matters. And I think to get at it, I want to contrast this a little bit. In fact, I want to contrast it with two things. I want to suggest that there are, there are these fundamental questions that that we ask in our life and the way that we answer those questions matter. And two of those fundamental questions are, how did we get here? Where did we come from? And then where are we going? It's the second coming of Jesus that answers for that, answers that question, what's coming? Where are we going? But we want to contrast it with how we answer the first question. Now, just about everyone, at least people who are engaging in this life in a thoughtful sort of way, uh, and especially cultures, and religions, and so forth, have thought about where we've come from. The anthropologists call it the story of origins, or a cosmology. And just about everyone also has a story of where we're going, what we call an eschatology, the story about where we're headed. And, and here's the interesting thing, that, that there's always competing stories. And, and this is, in fact, what we want to, we want to dig into. There's, there's fighting over the question, where did we come from? There's fighting over the question, where are we going? And that fighting is a philosophical question, it's a political question, and it's a theological question. And there's disagreements. Now, now these questions matter on a number of different levels, but, but most simply this, we want to say this, how we think that we got here affects how we think about ourselves, how we think about our lives, and how we think about one another. How we think we got here matters. It, it, it affects how we act. It affects how we think what's right and wrong. It, it affects how we think of what is good and what's evil. And the same thing is true about what we think is coming next. What we think will happen. What we think the future is also determines how we act and how we live in the here and the now. Now, Jesus in the Gospel is talking about the end, that the, the, the life and the world as we know it will come to an end. And we want to think about why that matters. That's where, that by the way is the end of this sermon. That's where we're headed in this sermon. But we're going to wander through the beginnings to get there. Uh, how did we get here? Where did we come from? 
There's a lot of fuss. There's always a lot of fuss in the church over Genesis 1. There's always a debate between creation and whatever. Fill in the blank. Because the church is always uh, giving a history of how things started that contrasts with the history of that, that the culture has about how things started. If we were living in India, we would be talking about creation versus the originless, eternal cycles of the Hindu religion. Or if we lived in Pakistan, surrounded by Islamists, we would be having a much different debate about how things got started. Or if we lived in Africa in the midst of people given over to spiritism, we would be fighting about creation versus whatever the story that they have. But the culture that we live in, you guys know this too, the culture that we live in has a particularly strong story about how we got here, and it is the argument of evolution, or the philosophy of evolution. The culture then points to the Big Bang to explain the origin of the universe and to Darwinian evolution to explain the origin of life and of mankind and of everything that everything that's good or everything at least that is. Now I think our interest at least this morning should be in this. What are the different implications of these different accounts of the origin? Or to, or to say it, just to kind of put a point on it, what are the implications of believing that everything that we see now and everything that we experience is the shrapnel of a prehistoric explosion? What does that imply for us? What, what are the implications of believing that we are simply evolved through chance from molecules to who we are now? Or, or to ask it another way, what are the implications of, of having a worldview that says that there is no creator and that things are purely materialistic? A few mo- I think I might have told you guys this story. A few months ago, I was invited to be on a video podcast to have a debate about free will. And I thought that I was going on there to debate with a Baptist or a Calvinist about our different views of free will. But it turns out, uh, that it was in fact an atheist that I was debating with. So I was, I was kind of embarrassing. It was a pretty bad showing, but I, went, I, I had this opening statement about how the Lutherans are different than the other Christians on the doctrine of free will. I talked about what the Bible said about free will and how the Lutheran idea is unique, etc., etc. And then the debating partner came on and he started describing his, his, his position and he was a complete materialist, a complete atheist. I, I simply was not ready for this. But here's what happened. As soon as I realized that he was an atheist, I thought, okay, here's my new strategy, what I'd like to do. I want to try to pin him to where he can't escape the conclusion of his worldview, and that is that everything, because everything is matter, everything is determined. And because everything is determined, there is no choice. And because there's no choice, there's no freedom. Because there's no freedom, there's no free will. And because there's no free will, there's no such thing as morality. And because there's no morality, there's no absolute right and wrong. And I thought if I could pin him down on that, then I would win the argument. So I made the argument that way, and I kind of laid it all out there with gusto and enthusiasm, and I stopped expecting him to sort of start fighting back, and instead he said, of course. (laughs) Of course there's no right and wrong. Of course there's no free will. Of course everything is determined. 
Of course, everything, every choice is an illusion. Atoms bouncing off of atoms. Of course that's the case. <laughs> I didn't know what, I didn't know what to do. I thought, it's like when you, in, you think of the biggest insult that you can and you insult someone and then they take it as a compliment and you're like, well now, what are we gonna fight about? We went round and round, by the way, just to finish off the story, we went round and round for a couple of hours about this, sort of saying the same thing to each other until we ran out of steam. And in the end, all I could do was simply thank him for his honesty. And I said, I- I'm glad that you admit that there's no right and wrong and that there's no freedom and that there's no choice and that there's no... I'm glad that you admit that. And I want to pray that your neighbors don't believe it <laughs> so they don't come and take all your stuff. Come punch you in the face and not worry about it. But now, here, here's back to the point of this thing. It seems to me that it is very difficult to understand that we are the result of an explosion, that we are here by chance, and that we can go on from there to talk about what's right and wrong. So that the ideology of evolution is going to bring with it a particular ethic, which is the survival of the fittest. It's it's a brutal and it's a savage ethic. My, My pastor Graf was reminding me this last week uh, of this book by David Berlinsky that draws the line from Darwin to Hitler, just a straight line to the two. And he even goes on to show how, how the slavery, which is based on race, is a unique modern phenomenon that comes out of the same sort of soup. It evolves, if you would, it evolves out of the same soup that Darwinian evolution comes from. There's none of this then to contrast it in the Bible. There's no way with the Bible to divide up people even just into different races. And the Bible teaches that we all have come from the same place. We all come from Adam and Eve. We all we even are related to, to Noah. There's a common humanity to every single person. So that these two ideas, and this is the point, these two ideas of how we got here, evolution and, and creation, the two competing ideologies in our own day, they have very, very different implications. They have opposite implications. The implications run into each other. I think, and this this will be your homework uh, to to think through this this week. To think of the implications of what it means that we are created. What are the implications of the fact that we were designed and built by God? That we were created in God's image and his and in His likeness. That there was in the beginning male and female. That creation. How about this? That the creation of the world. And the creation of, of humanity occurred simply through the unopposed speaking of God's Word in peace. That the beginning of creation was not a, a, a kind of a steaming stew, but rather it was a garden. Or that God created the world out of nothing. All of these things have implications about how we live and how we love and how we interact with one another and how we consider one another, how we pray and how we worship. Now, on this idea that worldviews or the way we think of these things or the way that we answer these fundamental questions, the way that these things have implications for the way we live, I want to I simply make this point also, is that I think oftentimes we go backwards. We, we kind of reverse engineer our worldview because, and, and we have to, all of us have to fight against this temptation because we find an implication that we want and then we go back to fill in the story and say, what needs to be true for this for me to be able to live and do the thing that I want to do. We, we ask this question. What do I have to believe in so that I can do the thing that I want to do and still be a good person according to my doctrine? And we change our beliefs to justify our actions. 
I think this happens, at least I think in, in my observation, this happens a lot with the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. We've got some sort of unchastity that we want to commit, and so we go looking for a worldview that lets me act how I want to act without troubling my conscience. But it's not just a sixth commandment. It's all the commandments of God, or whatever it is our flesh wants to do. We build a worldview to justify our own lives or our desires or our sins or even to justify and amplify our good works or whatever it is, and we, and we go backwards from the question. Right now, all, Okay, so all of this is a setup, because I want to now compare it to, to the way, to, to show the way we answer these questions matters for the way that we live, the way that we order our lives, the way we treat each other, the way we worship, so forth. And it doesn't just matter about the question, how do we get here, but it especially matters, and it's what we want to think about today, on the question, where are we going? It's no accident that the creeds answer both of these fundamental questions. Where did I come from? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And where are we going? He will come again in glory to judge both the quick and the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So we believe that there will be a last day. A day on which the trumpet will sound. A day on which Jesus will return physically to the earth. A day in which the dead will be raised. A day in which there will be a great division. The sheep from the goats the wheat from the chaff. And those who trust in Christ will come to eternal to an eternal life before the Lord in His glory. And those who trust in themselves will be cast into outer darkness and eternal condemnation. And we confess that that day could be here at any moment. Now Paul summarizes this teaching and some of the implications in our epistle text. Listen to, listen to how he says it. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede them that have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, this is the great Christian hope that Jesus is coming that the resurrection is coming, that there will be a great renewal. There will be an eternal age in a new heaven and a new earth where the righteous dwell. There in that place will be no sorrow, no trouble. Tears will be wiped away. There will be no sin. There will be no death. Simply life eternal that goes on into glory. And, and this is not only true for the whole world, it's true for each of us as individuals as well. We will die, but our soul will live on, waiting for the resurrection. And it's true for all people. So we live with an eye towards eternal life. We, we know that there is condemnation for sinners. We consider how it is that we can escape hell and attain eternal life. We, we know that for the Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we do not mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn with hope. We mix our tears with joy. We know that in Christ to live and to die is gain. But what's the contrast? 
how is that, how, how is the question answered in our own culture? Where are we going? How will this all end? Where are we headed? This, it's, it's not as clear to me, not as clear to me, that we have a solid answer. And it seems like we have a very clear answer when it comes to evolution, but what about the end of time? Now, we certainly live in an apocalyptic age. If you watch a movie or you read a book, the world is always about to end in those books. <laughs> Sometimes the threat comes from the outside, like an asteroid or an alien invasion or something like that. But mostly the troubles are man-made, human-caused. We've, whatever, brought ourselves to the brink of war so that the whole world is going to end, or we've... We've wrecked the planet so much that you've got to look for another planet to live on, or we've destroyed the environment to such a degree that the oceans are going to drown us all in a tsunami, or whatever. I mean, it's, you have all of these uh, stories about how things are going to end. Some of you remember how it was when you were growing up and you had the bomb drills in school, right? And you had to climb under under the desk, like this, like the. I always wondered why, like the seats that they used in school were like nuclear bomb-proof seats. But that was the great fear, right? That the world was going to end through atomic war? It, now, it seems like the main thing now, the main uh, story, is that it's some sort of environmental catastrophe that's coming that will end the world. And so, so that this is, this is what uh, obsesses our own mind. There's an end of the world, and I'm playing a part in it. Uh, and, and there's a way that the, the that our culture speaks about our individual end as well. And this is very interesting because I think most people are very inconsistent on this. You ask people if they believe in a heaven, and almost everyone does. How do you get there? Well, no one knows. You just die and you end up there. But there are people who are consistent and will admit that to be dead is dead. That there is no immaterial soul at all. I was talking to someone on the street, you know, I out visiting people walking around, and, and I was asking this guy what he, he thought happened when he died, and he was, this, I mean, it was just a very clear and clean answer, very consistent. What happens when you die, I said, and he says, well, nothing. Dead is dead. It's the end of it all. If there's no soul, I suppose that has to be what's true. There's no, there is no you or me or individual or anything that can survive beyond this moving around stuff. Dead is dead, the end of it all. And this is the thought of the end. Now, the the, the interesting question, again, for us to consider is, what are the implications? What are the implications of these two answers to the question, where is all of this going? Let's take the implications of the cultural answers first. If we're destroying the world, then it's up to us to fix it, to save ourselves. We have to be the saviors of the world. And on the individual level, if dead is dead, then what's the implication of that? We should live it up to maximize whatever we think is good in this life because it is all you have. And when it's over, it's over. On the other hand, if there is a last day coming when Jesus will return to judge the world, then this has very broad and important implications. Things look different for you and me who believe it. We are first diligent to do all that we can to keep His Word, knowing that the Master will return at any time. And we look with eagerness for the drawing near of that day, especially when things are difficult in this life. We look to the life to come. 
When, when we go in procession and carry our loved ones to the grave, we look for the life to come. When we are, are being brought near to the grave ourselves, when our last day is drawing near, we look for the day to come and we long for that day when the dead will be raised. We hope for that day when the trumpet will sound. We know, as, look, we know as we live in this life that this life is only the prelude, only the beginning of the true life and the true joy that is to come. And so we live and we love and we serve and we hope with kind of an abandon. We are not afraid to die because we belong to Jesus. And, and we know that Jesus has, has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us so that as he promised, he will come back for us. So that where he is, we will be also. We know, each of us knows, because we know our sin, we know that our future should be one of darkness and of gloom, but we know that Christ has died for us. That his blood has made a way for us to come to eternal life. That his resurrection has made a way for us to overcome death. And so with confidence in this, in this, the forgiveness that comes from the death of Jesus for all of our sins, with confidence in this, we eagerly wait for his return and we abide in this, we abide in this hope. Because Jesus is your Savior. The one who is coming for you is the one who died for you. The one who will stand at last on the earth is the one who hung from the cross. The one who calls you out of the grave is the one who has holes in his hands from his crucifixion. And so we lift up our eyes with eagerness and joy and abide in this hope. Dear saints, we we know where we came from and we know where we're going. And we rejoice in this hope. A hope that will never end. In the name of Jesus. Amen. And the peace of God that passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.